0: Coming up on episode 186 of Wheelbearings. You took the time to send us questions and comments, so we take the time to answer. We're driving the Hyundai Palisade, Kia Telluride, and we spend a while talking about the Chevrolet Bolt EUV drives that Sam and Rebecca participated in. We also talk about Stellantis, considering the Cherokee Nation's suggestion that it rename its SUVs. And of course we head off on a bunch of different tangents. That's all ahead on episode 186 of Wheelbearings.
1: This is Wheelbearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Sam aboual from Guidehouse Insights.
2: And I'm Rebecca Lindlem from Rebecca Drives.
0: All right. We, I kept everybody waiting, so we'll jump into the garage. Um, I just wanted to – one last note on the Tundra that I had because uh, we talked about it last week. As antique as the Tundra is – well, you weren't on last week, so I came up with a theory okay. for the Tundra. and um, uh, It's entropy-resistant character development. <laughs> and the, the, the So the hypothesis is that the longer an automaker keeps a, a model in production without major changes, the more character – it develops. Oh, I like that. Okay, yeah. So and, and I, I think that holds true. So I, I that's a poster child for it, but they're gonna replace it with a new tundra very soon. So yes. I'll be curious to see how that truck turns out. Okay, cool. The more I drove it, the more I realized that thing is tight as a drum. It didn't rattle at all over crappy pavement or anything. It's just just, just it felt like it was really well screwed together. And um they seem to have the bugs worked out of their fifteen year old truck. That's good.
1: <laughs> Finally got it right, huh?
0: There you go. Well done, you. (laughs) No, I I quite liked it. I just think it's expensive.
1: You you build something long enough, and sooner or later, you'll get it right.
0: (laughs) Right. That's... Good stick-to-itiveness. All right. Uh, what are the rest of you two driving? What? Uh, who, well, Rebecca, you haven't been on in a while. I know. I'm
2: so sorry to everyone that I missed last week. That was very disappointing um, for me. And I really wanted to be on it. And especially because I missed our guest. Um, so I actually had an interesting couple of vehicles. Uh, I had the 2021 Hyundai Palisade. Uh, they large seven-seater. But I also, about two weeks ago, I had the 2021 Kia Telluride, which is its sister vehicle. So it was interesting to compare and contrast those two.
0: Which do you like better? You know, I feel like that's like picking between children. I, think- I can tell well, you.
1: We're forcing no, you to wait. make the choice.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you of my two children. I like the dog best. <laughs>
2: exactly.
1: Dan, Dan knows from where he speaks.
2: Um, I actually, you know what I like best is the 2021 Alfa Romeo Stelvio that is now sitting in my driveway oh, after much nice. drama. Congratulations. The dealership did came you, through, and, you and
1: like, do you know who I am?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> oh my God! Do you not know who? I need to make haven't, in here
1: Haven't oh. you seen me on CNBC? <laughs> right.
2: So, so, and you know, what was interesting about this transaction was that the, I actually did it from home. He actually brought the car to my house. Oh, and nice. so we did all the paperwork, which was so convenient. And yeah, I will I mean, nice. one thing I want to make perfectly clear is that my issues with the dealership was not about haggling. The price was established because um, I had a special code from Fiat yeah, Chrysler, which was lovely and, or uh, Stellantis, sorry. And it was more that they tried to change the policy. They tried to not because they're because Alpha Romeos are selling so well and they only have a certain number of, of Stelvios, their argument was we don't want to hold it over the weekend, but what you know through Saturday. But when you tell me on Friday that you can hold it for 48 hours, I expect you to hold it for 48 hours. And so all of a sudden it was this big sense of urgency that they needed, they wanted it to be available for sale on basically like Saturday afternoon.
0: Well, because they could screw somebody else. They could handle <laughs> with someone else and get more profit out of that unit if they screwed you too. And they don't care who they screw. Well,
1: you know, as, as long as we're mm. on the topic of dealers.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought it was, it was screwing or not, but okay, good to know. <laughs> no, I <I'm laughs> just
1: right uh, off the, the side but of the But dealers cliff. doing <laughs> nefarious <laughs> things. And this is, this is why people hate car dealers. Uh, my daughter this week finally decided to uh, bite the bullet and and buy a, a new car, replace her fourteen almost you know thirteen for almost fourteen year old Honda Fit, which has been okay. a great car for. Her. Yes. Um, but she decided she wanted something different, and uh, she decided to she wanted to buy a Toyota eighty six, and you know rather than buy a new one, she opted for a used one. She found one, um, with like twenty seven thousand miles on it from a dealer in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Which is about two hours away from Ann Arbor, where she lives. And yeah, you know, the the ad, you know, specifically said, you know, Toyota certified. Yeah. It said, and, and we have a screen grab of the ad. It said Toyota certified, you know, implying that it's a you know a certified pre owned vehicle. It's gone through the Toyota process, you know, got a warranty and everything. She drove down to Fort Wayne, bought the car traded in her fit drove the the 86 back loves the car but then she realized she didn't get any documentation saying anything about you know and i've never bought a cpo car so i don't know if they actually come with a certificate that says this has been certified by toyota in this case you know and it's gone through the inspection process you know so the last two days she's been you know going back and forth with toyota she realized she hadn't gotten anything that actually says it was a certified pre-owned and so she's been talking to Toyota saying, "Hey, I I think this dealer you know might have screwed me on this because, you know, uh, I I have no indication that this is act-. and Toyota you know looked and said, "It doesn't look like it's gone through our CPO process." Wow. Now, Did you pay granted, a
2: premium for that?
1: Well, granted, the price she paid for it was actually, you know, right in the ballpark, you know, right in the range. You know, we looked on KBB and Edmonds. You know, okay. it's it's right in the, the right range, you know, for a non-CPO car. Okay. Um, so, you know, she didn't overpay for it. I'll, you know, say But that they
2: much. advertised it as a CPO. But they
1: advertised it as a CPO. So, you know, if you're buying a used car, you know, that's supposed to be a certified pre-owned, make sure you double check on it. Make sure that you're actually getting what they're advertising. And in general, when you're buying a used car, it's also a good idea to, you know, have it checked out, you know, spend a hundred bucks and have it checked out by a mechanic to, to make sure that there's nothing, you know, significant wrong with it before you buy. When I,
0: when I was shopping for E-class wagons uh, a year ago now, as one does, um, I, uh, I horribly offended the Mercedes dealer that had the one that I test drove and, and really liked before I decided I wanted a truck. They, I was like, I need to get it, you know, checked out. I want to have a pre-purchase inspection. she was just like, well, I mean, we're the Mercedes dealer. <laughs> we... We know these cars. It's like that's that's fine. I've owned European cars before. I'm going to get a pre-purchase inspection. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> well, so Nicole had a funny experience shopping with her daughter. Nicole Wakeland, who was a guest a couple of weeks ago, uh, she had a funny experience uh, shopping with her daughter this a uh, couple of days ago. Uh, they went into a dealership and she made the fatal error of instead of saying window sticker, she said, "Do you have the Munro?ny Munro?ny <laughs> Which, right, immediately gave her away. And she was like, oh shoot, but she didn't say anything. And so they went on their test drive. And by the time they got back, they had Googled her <laughs> and oh, no. found out exactly who <laughs> she was and everything. And, you know, she just became a NACTOI juror, which is so, so great. It's uh, North American car and truck of the year. And so, you know, she's in the news a lot lately and stuff. So she and had she a very funny a story
0: because <laughs> you need to be like, it's like, that's like a gang. You need to be beat in. Um, uh, so did they give her a deal? Were they like afraid of her then? Or? Yes,
2: they were afraid of her. Appropriately so, as yeah. well they should be. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> but yes. So, so, so anyway, now that
1: we've run off the rails yeah. immediately. Yeah. yeah. Let's go back to the question. Tell your rider, Palisade. <clears throat>
0: yes. Yeah, so which is your favorite child? You know what?
2: I'm still going to go with Palisade. I'm, okay. It. I the the. I'm sorry. I'm going with telluride. I'm sorry. I'm going with telluride. I love the, the, I love the square. <laughs> I, I love the square lights on them. They're so distinctive. The headlamps. They're so distinctive. You know that when you are when a pal when a, um, a telluride is coming towards you, you know it. Like actually, I I was I was in mine and I was near a dealership and the guy was moving the. Telluride. And I kind of, fla- you know, I flashed my lights a little bit. And we waved at each other and I thought, oh, isn't that fun? Uh, but it's just so distinctive. And and I think the Palisade is incredibly handsome. It's a very elegant vehicle, but there's something more approachable about the Telluride. And I don't know, it's just, it's a little bit more youthful and rugged. And I, I just, both vehicles are incredibly good. And so I wouldn't hesitate to recommend either one of them. Uh, you know, the price point is very similar. The engine, the 3.8 liter engine is the same. There's just small differences, but I really think you're just deciding between uh, between exterior because even the interior is very similar. They're so intuitive. The The fit, the finish, the features, they're just they're all really, really good. And I, somebody was at my house uh, yesterday and he said, oh, you're the girl with the cars. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I am. And <laughs>
0: let me show you my Monronie.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to come up and see my Monronie? Hey. Uh, and so <laughs> he, uh, he asked me that. So, so the Palisade was sitting out there and he said, what do you think of that? And I said, I would I wouldn't hesitate to recommend it to anybody. And, you know, as we've talked about with Hyundai and Kia before, there still is skepticism about these brands. And it's so unfair because they're so good. And I just told him, I said, you know, if if you need a seven-seater, this is a vehicle for you. The way that it drives, the way that it handles. You know, I've been going back and forth to storage a lot as I purge my house. And I mean, they carry the size of Japanese apartments. Like you can put so much stuff in there. It's just, it's incredible. So I am a I'm a huge fan. The other thing that was remarkable to me was even though they don't have running boards, how easy they are to get in and out of. You know, I'm five feet tall. That's not I don't say that a lot about a lot of trucks, but I didn't even hesitate. Like, I don't think about getting in and out of them, which tells me that it's very easy to do. And I just was, I'm a big fan of both of them.
0: I I mean, I think you kind of have to pick between the more uh, Scandinavian style interior of the Telluride or the sort of more German or English (laughs) kind of opulent quilt stitched themes in the Palisade, right? That's kind of...
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, one is definitely more elegant than the other. I mean, I think the Palisade is probably a little bit more elegant. Than, no,
1: absolutely, but yeah. yeah, but you know, it's a it's a matter of personal taste. You know, your, your personal style. Exactly. Like you, I, I kind of uh, veer towards the direction of the Kia, um, but you know, not that there's anything wrong with the the Palisade. It's just it's not my personal style. I I prefer you know, the cleaner look, you know, the, the more um, restrained look of the, of the, the uh, Telluride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so. I mean,
2: I think, I feel like the, I feel like the Telluride is sort of, you know, that's that junior, senior and high school kind of coolness. And then the Palisade is, you know, or maybe college is like business school. <laughs> like yeah. It's just, it's just a, a little bit, it's a little bit more refined. It's 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 much more understated, although it still is distinctive on the road. Those like yellow rectangular headlamps on the Telluride. I don't think there's anything else out there like that. It's that the, is an it's aftermarket.
0: It's the glowing squirkles that get you. Uh-huh. I
2: got it. It is. Yeah. It's the glowing squirkles. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um. All right. Well, I, I mean. W- in terms of capability and, and and everything, like, I think you're right. They're kind of, it's like, it's interesting that you have them back to back because they're kind of really sort of two different preparations of the same ingredients.
2: They are. Well, and I actually had the Volvo S90 in the middle. <laughs> oh.
0: So that, you know, that's an interesting thing because that one of the things that I thought about with the Telluride was, you know, this feels very Volvo-like <laughs> in its atmosphere inside, especially, but it's definitely not, Volvo price. No, it's hard hard to tell though. Like that's the thing. It's, it, it does the same thing that the Volvo does to a certain degree where it looks and feels premium, no matter what it costs.
2: Yep, very much so. I mean, I well, and the what was stunning to me also about the Volvo was how much it held. Like, I went to storage with that thing, and it I, I have a picture of it that I'll, I'll put on the Slack. Uh, it, it held a lot, but no, I mean, the price point on the Volvo, I believe, was in about 55, and the Palisade and the Telluride clock in max at like 4849. And you're just getting so much for that car. But they're two completely different experiences, of course. I mean the Volvo, you know, is a sedan. It's a beautiful large four-door sedan. Very elegant, very capable, you know, almost like a limo sort of feel to it. I, uh, you know, very long, beautiful lines, but it's not the same. <laughs> so, you know, from a capacity standpoint and such. I mean the the Volvo. Uh, one of the things that was remarkable about the Volvo, considering their reputation for safety, and I I have a picture of this and I'll I'm curious to see if if other people have experienced this. In the back, in the second row of the Volvo, the the middle, you know, the armrest that comes up and down, like you can put it up for five people if you have a, a fifth person and you put it down. When it's up, it almost completely obscures the view from the rearview mirror.
1: Hmm. And it's like why all cars should have the digital camera mirrors
2: like what well, they should. But like, shockingly, so like I was I was really taken aback because I thought it was directly in my line of sight for my for my rearview mirror. Uh-huh. And I ended up putting it down for the whole week because it was so it was it was so intrusive and i just was very surprised about that because it's almost like the like the it's almost like it has its own extra headrest for safety and i guess maybe if somebody's sitting there their head would obscure the line of sight anyway but
1: yeah but when you don't have any passengers in the back seat you know you want you know you want a clear view if you can have it right and, and that's that's the beauty of the the camera mirror systems um, yes. you know is that it's you know, it's on the outside. It's unobstructed.
2: Yes. I, I absolutely love the camera system. And if people don't know what we're talking about, I, a lot of, I've experienced it in GM products, Yeah, um, GM, but Land Rover has first. it. Yeah there's, yeah. there's a few
1: manufacturers doing it now. Right. And so go ahead.
2: Well, it's cool because you, from, from your rearview mirror, you can just flick the mirror. There's a little button underneath it. And it actually doesn't, it doesn't show the interior of the car. So if you have people in the backseat, like little kids, they will disappear, <laughs> but it shows the exterior of the car. Like it activates the camera that's outside the car. What it's ideal for is if you have packed your car to capacity, you've packed your SUV or, or whatever, and you can't see out your rearview mirror, you can flick this little switch and it shows the road behind you using the X uh, camera and I thought that was really cool. Is that a good explanation, Sam? Yeah,
1: well I, I would add to that even <laughs> even if you haven't packed your vehicle, even if it's empty, you know, especially yes. in SUVs, you know, you often, you know, you've got a lot of pillars, you've got a lot of, you know, often a lot long distance to the back and you know, if you may have two or three rows of seats behind you with headrests and those things block the view. Mm. And, you know, having having the camera on the outside that gives you a completely unobstructed view. And the other thing, too, is, you know, on a truck or an SUV where you're also sitting up higher. Yes. uh, Even even if you don't have anything directly blocking your view on the inside, you still can't. You know, the you know, the the lowest part of the glass, you know, is usually, you know, four, maybe five feet off the ground. And, you know, if there's anything directly behind you, you cannot see it. Mm. And those cameras will give you a view, a much better, a much more comprehensive view of what's behind you. So it's much better for safety.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I love those cameras. I, I've heard some people say that they don't, they have a hard time with them, that they can't get used to them. When I was on the GMC Sierra pickup truck drive, which was now like 2018 or 19, I, I got used to it right away. It didn't even, and once it was on, I never turned it off again. And you're right. I um, I mean, I didn't have a, I didn't have anything in the pickup bed, but it was
0: great. I have trouble focusing. Like, uh, I, I, I have to practice more with them. I think it's just, it, it's not the same as a prismatic mirror.
1: Right. Your your focus does change a little bit. Um, you know, because when you're looking at a, at an optical mirror, you know, your act, your eyes are actually focusing on what's, you know, the distance behind you. So you're focusing at a farther distance away. As opposed to when you're looking at a display, your your eyes are focusing on that display. So it's a shorter focusing distance. So it does take a little bit of adjustment. But I think once you, once you drive it for a while, I mean, I know it didn't take me long to get used to it. And, you know, yeah. jumping back and forth between cars, you know, I, I've never... I don't have a problem with it anymore. Like, you know, right now I've got an Escalade in the driveway. And then, you know, last week we drove, you and I, Rebecca both drove the, the Bolt EUV and I, I don't know about yours, but mine had the camera mirror in it.
2: Yes. Yep. Mine had it as well. Yeah. Well, and it's what? great.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about the Bolt EUV. <laughs> okay.
0: Um, other than like, so it's a bigger bolt, but it's not actually bigger. And it, it, it's, no, it is.
1: Um, it's, I, it's, it's six inches longer than the regular Bolt.
0: But where is that six inches? It's in the rear, it's, rear it's split, legroom,
1: right? Uh, so you got three inches additional wheelbase, and then three more inches behind the rear axle. Um, so you got a full three inches of extra legroom in the back, you know, and then a little more space behind the back seat as well. Um, but like height and width, you know, it's the same as the regular Bolt. So it has has the same frontal area as a Bolt, uh, but you know, it's just a little. It's basically just stretched. Um, and you know the the styling is you know the design is slightly different and the you know the fascia is slightly different from the the Bolt and you know it the way I described it in my write up on Forbes is you know it looks kind of like a mini Blazer you know it's got you know a lot of the same styling cues as, as the Blazer so you have the the slim horizontal daylight running lamps across the top edge and then the headlights are down below. And then, you know, the side profile, of the glass, you know, it sweeps up at the back and you have that little black trim and the C pillar. So it, it kind of looks like a mini blazer. And size wise, it it slots in almost almost directly in between uh, the tracks and the uh, trailblazer uh, in terms of size. So the trail it's slightly smaller than a trailblazer, smaller or larger than a tracks, uh, but it's a little bit lower than both of them.
2: I was going to say d- without the ride height
1: though. Without the ride height. Yeah. Because length, it's, length, it's length, a hatchback. Yeah it's,
2: yeah. it's a hatchback, it's um, a
1: hatch. but it's, you know, but it, it's a tall hatch. You know, the bolt has always been, you know, a, a re- proportionately, a relatively tall car, you know, compared to like, say compared to a Sonic, you know, which would be the closest gas engine vehicle in the, mm-hmm. in the GM lineup. You know, it's, it's tall. It's always been taller than the Sonic and it's a little bit wider. So, yeah, it, it, is, it is a bit roomier.
2: It is. So one of the things, and I don't mean to just jump right into the negative, because I think I, I love the fact that they brought this vehicle out. I don't think there's enough differentiation between the Bolt and the EUV. I mean, when when we looked at it, like at one point, even the Chevy person like walked over to the Bolt and not the EUV. <laughs> it was so similar. But um one of the things that I noticed, and I, I apologize. I don't know why all of a sudden my computer's freaking out here. Um, One of the things I noticed was that there was not that really engaging torque to the one ve- driving the vehicle. Did you have that? Like, I just, yeah. I didn't feel like I was getting instant torque from it, this thing.
1: Did you put it in sport mode or even in regular mode? Yeah. I, I Got plenty of torque right off the line. Did you really? I yeah. just maybe you've just been spoiled.
2: Maybe I maybe I have been spoiled by the by the Mach E because it was not the same.
1: No, it's definitely not. You know, it's not the same. You know, it's not in the same league as the Mach E. But right. you know, the, the Mach E all-wheel drive. You know, it's like three hundred and sixty horsepower, and this is two hundred.
2: Okay, so this is what's interesting, and this is what I wanted to ask you about because I think I I know I make the 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 mistaken. Miscon- the misconception, the mistaken misconception, the misconception that all EVs have really good torque, but it does get back to horsepower.
1: Well, I mean, they, they have good, they all have good torque. You know, they all develop their their peak torque right from zero RPM, but that doesn't mean that they all have the same amount of torque.
2: Right. Okay. Because you know? so again- I just, I found it really sloggy. I was just, I was disappointed.
1: Okay. You're a lead foot. Yeah. That's what. <laughs> You know, Isn't
2: slogging an acceptable term? <laughs> that's perfectly acceptable.
1: The the bolt has two hundred and sixty foot pounds of torque. You know, the, 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 um, you know, the Mach E I think is about uh, the all wheel drive is somewhere around four hundred. So again, you know, it's like fifty or almost double the torque.
2: And so, I, so what causes that difference? And I know it's a very remedial question, d- but different as we motor. all know, that's what I'm here for. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, you know, well, you, the mach you know, the ones, the ones that you and I both drove, you know, uh, are, uh, have our dual motor. So there's, there's, there's an electric motor in the front axle and, and another larger one in the rear axle. Okay. Um, you know, so, and they're bigger motors. So, you know, it's, it's just like an, you know, an engine, you know, you know, depending how much, how much, uh, you know, if you got a bigger engine, it's going to generally produce more power. If you have a bigger motor, you're going to be able to get more power and torque out of it. Got it. Okay. So more windings, more copper, more magnets.
2: So so that was, I, I just, I mean, one of the benefits to me, one of the benefits of, driving electric vehicle, because that's what we haven't really done as an industry is show people why this is better than an internal combustion engine is the torque. And I wanted, I wanted more response from the bolt EUV than, than was there. And, and it could be, as you say, it's, I'm sure it is. It's, it's the foot pounds of torque. It's the, it's the lack of, it's, it's a, it's a very different vehicle than the Mach-E. Um, but you know, it did a lot of things really well though. It was, it was quiet. It was refined. I mean, they, you know, so over surface roads and different roads and stuff, I thought it did, it did a good job. I just, I
1: wanted more oomph. Yeah. Well, you know, nothing wrong with the desire for more oomph. Um
0: You know, but I think it- the, the perfect analog for it is that that's about the same amount of power it would have if it were powered by, uh you know, like a turbo gas engine, like, you know, you're, industry standard two liter turbo four cylinders yeah. would have about the same amount of power. So well, it's, actually a little less than that, well. more
1: like a 1.6. Yeah. You know, like the, so, the Hyundai Kia 1.6, you know, like in a Veloster N or, you know, um, you know, a lot, a lot of those cars, you know, 1.6 turbos are usually right around 200 horsepower, 250 foot pounds of torque. That's about what this thing does. Um, and you know, and I'm, I just pulled up the Maki tech specs. Yeah. It's, um, Two hundred or uh, all-wheel drive is three hundred and forty-six horsepower and four hundred and twenty-eight foot-pounds of torque. So it's nearly double the yeah. torque.
0: Yeah, but I think what? I think too some of it, it is just the, yeah, yeah, exactly. the character of the vehicle too. The Bolt EUV is not meant to to drive with the same uh, joie de vivre of the Mach E. Maybe in suits. it's, it's, yeah. it, it's uh, supposed to be. Just it's it's a real you know, the thing about the Bolt and the Bolt EV that almost hurts it is that it's such a normal experience. It's it it doesn't try to call that much attention to its electric powertrain. It it just tries it tries to be a normal car, you know?
2: No, you're absolutely right. You're you're absolutely right. It does try and be a normal car. Now, with that being said, I did really enjoy using Super Cruise, which was my first experience with Super Cruise. Oh, really? So first,
0: time? How, first time. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's, it's, and the difference between Super Cruise here and in the Cadillacs is that it just this just doesn't have the bumpy seat, right? Uh,
1: yeah, the the this is the yeah, uh, compared to the CT6, which is no longer in production.
0: Is that the technical term the bumpy seat. Yeah. Yes. The bumpy
1: seat, yeah, it's sloggy. Yeah, it doesn't have the <laughs> doesn't have the rumble seat. Um, but otherwise it's it's the exact same system that was in the CT6. The new Cadillacs you know, and and the other stuff that's coming out this year. So the, the Escalade, uh, they're going to start shipping Super Cruise uh, in the next couple of weeks. And the CT5 and CT4 are getting it and a whole bunch of other GM vehicles. They have the second generation Super Cruise, which is more capable and adds things like auto lane change and, and various other features.
2: We should explain what Super Cruise is.
1: So Super Cruise is the hands-free driving assist system that GM it is offers. Not, it's not the
0: self-driving it is it right, is, right.
1: <laughs> it is not self-driving
0: I can't even there make are jokes no about
1: self-driving that. cars available for sale anywhere Although, in the world today
0: uh, Any self-driving today cars Honda, none was it was a Honda that um a Honda has a level three system <gasps> yes I yes. saw that I was uh, I saw it, that today I was like well wow, cool. even
1: even that's not really it's it's conditional automation it's not self-driving
0: Right, so, and, uh, but like level three, I was shocked to see level three. That's yes, all. and
1: but, I haven't read um, enough about it. So yeah, you know, there, there. So it's a it's a driver assist system. You know, it combines lane centering, adaptive cruise control, and hands free capability. And the way it does that, there's a driver monitor system. There's a little infrared camera that sits on top of the the steering column that looks at the driver. You know, and looks for your your eye gaze and your your head position to make sure that you're still watching the road. Uh, so because you you have to be paying attention and ready to take the wheel at any time. Now, Grant, I said that this is the same system as on the CT6, but there actually have been some improvements compared to the last CT6 I drove. Uh, and I don't know if these these improvements ever got into the CT6 or not before it went out of production because it's been a couple of years since I drove one. But one of the things that it does now that it didn't do that the last Cadillac I drove with it didn't have. Uh, if you were you know on a highway and your lane was ending. Uh, you know, it knows that the lane is coming to an end and it actually gives you an alert now saying lane ending, move, move left or move, move right. You know, like if, if, or, you know, if it was a, an exit only lane that you were in, you know, it would tell you to move left. Um, so it actually gives you that alert now. Whereas before, when I, when I drove the Cadillac before you had to be watching, you had to pit if, mm. if you didn't, you know, if you didn't, um, pay attention and the lane came to an end, you know, it the system, um, you know, would just disengage. It wouldn't give you that alert ahead of time.
2: So, so we had some interesting experiences and and we drove pre-production models. People yeah. should know. So these are vehicles, actually ours were pre, pre-production. So they're, they're never going to be for sale. You're never going to see these cars, um, this, you know, this particular, ver- this particular exact Vehicle, so these were pre pre production, and so they were still getting over the air updates. Um, even that morning, they were you know they were getting some more software updates and such. So we had a couple of instances I did where the super cruise just disengaged. It just all of a sudden. I was like, oh, okay. I have to take over now. And, and it's, it's not that it just, it does it and doesn't tell you there's the bar on the steering wheel goes from green to bright red and starts flashing at you and such. But what was interesting was, um, I was in New Jersey when we were doing this and we drove by a Nabisco plant that my dad actually used to go to, um, when he was uh, developing products as a consultant for Nabisco. So, um, so I noticed it on the road and I, and, and then I lost super cruise shortly thereafter. Like were you I could looking still at see the it plant
1: while you were driving past it.
2: Um, I looked over, but I didn't stare at it. Like I glanced over to it okay. and, and then went back, but that's an interesting observation though, because do you think that's why why I lost well, it? Yeah,
1: If, if you, uh, if you look away from the road for more than about at highway speeds, like at 70 miles an hour, if you look away for more than about three or four seconds, uh, that's when it'll start to uh, give you the alert and, and start to disengage.
2: I would be surprised if I would do that only because I, I, I just, I feel like I wouldn't, that's not my habit, you know, and I didn't, I didn't drive super cruise long enough because that's a long time to not be looking at the
1: road. Oh, yeah. no, it is.
2: Like that's a really, you know, that's a really long time. Maybe it was because I looked away a couple of times because I did be. look at it. I did Maybe look. That. I and noticed just, you just it. To go turn yeah.
0: around and get yourself some like Nilla wafers or something.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I, he used to bring home like so. They would ch- so. So my dad <laughs> Andy, had he had a very exactly. interesting job, and we're totally digressing. But he would he worked for a company that did flame treatment and flame burners on commercial. Commercial products, and so, um, I actually met the interior designer for the Pontiac Fiero when I was a kid, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever because he was doing some kind of molding plastics or something. Does anything with Fiero
1: was
0: pretty familiar with flame treatment,
2: right?
1: (laughs) But usually after production, but when it was in the field,
2: that's (laughs) terrible. So, my dad brought some you know designer guy there, so yeah,
1: Yeah.
2: exactly. (laughs) So anyway, back to the cookies. So Nabisco would actually, like, they would be... The ovens would be running for him to test and see how they were responding and see how the product was coming out. So he used to bring home like freshly baked cookies.
0: Oh my god, that were
2: ridiculous. And then, know, like, and then, as fresh
0: Nabisco must be better than like the stuff you get in the it store.
2: Is, it know? is better. It, it ruined me. And then I'm I used to aged. go to the baking show in Las Vegas. And the, and it, you walk into the baking show at the convention center, and like, Au Bon Pain is there, and they have these huge ovens, and it smells like a freaking bakery, <laughs> right?
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so anyway, so no, Sam, that's a really interesting observation because then when we got back to um, back to base, which is the, an airport, a, a little private airport, uh, I was talking to Jeremy Short, the engineer on our trip, and I mentioned I because we we kind of compared notes. In the first leg. And I said that I was losing, I was losing supercruise at different points. And it was, I wanted it to let me know in, in a more aggressive fashion than it was doing. So all of a sudden, I just wouldn't have super Cruise And I was like, oh, okay. And he said that shouldn't really happen. So then on the second leg, I tried to be a little bit more observant as to where it was happening. And then it just happened to be like right after the Nabisco plant. But I do wonder if it is because I certainly caught my eye as we were approaching it. We were probably going 45. It caught my eye for sure. And then I looked again because I was like, oh my gosh, that's an Nabisco plant that my dad would have gone to. And... So I do wonder if it was because I looked. I probably looked three times in uh, a relatively what, short amount of time.
1: I mean, there are a couple of other things that could be. Um, you know, what what did the lane markings look like? Were they faded?
2: Uh, no, they weren't. Okay. It was a it was a two lane road with a two lanes in each direction with a, a right. barrier in the middle. Right. Uh,
1: what about um, was there a highway interchange coming up there? Cause that's the other thing too, that it does now, you know, it, when, when you're approaching a highway interchange, um, you know, it will disengage at that point, you know, until you get past the interchange.
2: No, this was like, um, this was almost like a post road or route one. I'm, mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to think in, in Detroit, like telegraph, it was, it wasn't yeah. as busy as telegraph. So the the entrances and there's a lot of like big box stores along the way and such, but there wasn't anything significant. So Jeremy did not lose super cruise at that point.
1: Okay. And and that's, and that was was something obstructing your camera. Maybe one of the, because then it,
2: because then I was able to activate it again. So it was just what I've, what I found challenging was knowing when it was available because he, we were actually on radios with him. It was a lead follow. Yeah. So he would tell us you can activate super cruise. And then also the steering wheel would turn green. Right. And so then I, I knew that then it I had the opportunity to use it, but it didn't ever tell me when it was ending. That was always a okay. surprise. Well, that,
0: so, and this is, this is a problem with that, right? Like the system is because you've got to be, you've got to be ready to take over. Or there's kind of no point in having the automated driving because human nature is you're going to tune
1: out. Right, and this this is the fundamental problem with with these kinds of systems is with level humans, three. Well, level two or three. I mean, this is a level two yeah. system. Yeah. You know, um, you know you're, humans are bad at supervising automated systems. You know, when it works, mo- I mean, when it, when something works most of the time, you quickly become very comfortable with it. And then you stop paying as much attention as you should, which is why they have that driver monitor system in there, you know, that is watching you. Um, and, you know, it is when it detects that you're not paying attention, then it alerts you and it'll start to de- deactivate the system and it won't let you activate it. But, you know, in general, you know, anytime that there's human supervision, you know, what it should be is the automation supervising the human and stepping in if the human is doing something wrong. Not the other way around. This, having the human supervise the automation is always uh, always a bad idea.
2: So, a couple things. So, why is this not a level three? It drives itself.
1: Le- level three, uh, a level three system. Uh, so, le- level two. Uh, let me step back a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, you get the idea of hands on, eyes on, brain on. Okay. Okay. At level one, your hands on, eyes on. Okay. Okay. And so your hands are on the wheel, your eyes are on the road. And
2: ideally and your brain your, is too?
1: Ideally is your brain is on. <laughs> okay. Um, level Shit, two. That's going to be a problem. It, or actually <laughs> two plus in this case is where you go hands off, but right? your eyes on and your brain are still on. Okay. Okay. Level three allows you to go hands off, but you don't have to watch the road under certain conditions. So it can operate under certain without, dress- Okay. but you do have to be brain on. So you can't right. take a nap. You do have to be available, you have to be ready to take over, you know, when it gets to certain points or if it can't handle certain conditions, but you don't have to be watching the road all the time. So you could be looking at the screen, you could be, you know, texting or something, uh, you know, and, and not watching the road constantly. Because you have to watch the road, it's a level two system.
2: Okay, because I know Google had said that they were having problems with their engineers, where their engineers were falling asleep when they were in the level three right, mode, and, and they working, weren't.
1: It it were it was working well. Actually, what Google was doing was actually still a level two system. Uh, it wasn't even a level. They weren't even doing okay. level three. They were trying to do level two, uh, like this, and they found that the, the the system worked well enough that you know people were you know would quickly become comfortable with it and would not pay attention sufficiently that they would be ready to take over. Right. And and this is the fundamental problem with any of these kinds of systems where, you know, where it's got just enough automation to get you into trouble if you're not careful.
2: Well, and now one of the things that they're running into issues with is when people are wearing masks in their car, that can sometimes interfere with, um, with really effective monitoring. I think I mentioned Um,
1: I, I actually had a call the other day with the with the uh, um, CEO of Seeing Machines, uh, which oh, is cool. the Australian company that actually makes the driver monitor system that GM uses and BMW okay. uses it, and some other companies are going to be using it as well. Um, and they're you know they're not really looking at your lower face; they're looking at the head pose, the head position, and the eyes. So as, long as you I- can see, the eyes.
2: Right. But so other systems are looking at the entire face and those are the ones that are having issues uh, because GM actually had, I mean, Chevy had us remove our masks in the car. And I asked the question, I said, is it to help the monitoring? And they said, yes.
1: Mm, okay.
2: So, but I do know other systems like dry drive, which is based in New York here. Um, they, they have dots all over the face. And so, while well, so I think different systems are doing different things with yeah. it, but the ones that where it's the full face that they're monitoring, because they are monitoring drive actually does monitor lips and, and function and, and they do more the lower face. So I could definitely see where masks were going to be the, the issue there, you know, yeah, and then absolutely. some masks, I mean, on my small, on my small face, some masks go really, like I actually have to physically pull it down away from, not only because my glasses are big, but my some masks cover my entire face, so like they probably go up to my eyelashes
1: the, the kids masks.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, it is it's, it's you know, but people with smaller faces, I could see where there could actually be some issue there. So I think it depends on on the on you know, the circumstances. but overall though, I thought Super Cruise, I could imagine it helping certainly on long drives uh-huh. and, you know, and for truckers. I mean, commercial space, there's so much opportunity for commercial space, I think, for these kinds of applications.
1: Yeah. You know, I think the my experience with Super Cruise now over several different uh, times using it is that for within the scope of what it's designed to do, it works really, really well. It does, mm-hmm. it, does it better than any other system out there, including autopilot. You know, it is more limited in scope than what autopilot is allowed to do. But within that scope, it does it better. You know, it has a better mm. driver monitor system. You know, it does a, a great job of staying in the lane and everything and detecting cut-ins uh, because they've got four corner radars, you know, so they've got front corner radars. So if somebody's trying to cut in front of you, it, it, it'll pick that up very quickly and back off. Um, so it's it, it's definitely it works really well. But, uh, you know, my Issue is, you know, as I said, with the fundamental concept not just GM, but, you know, all the companies doing this and, you know, it's the summer it's going to be on the Mach-E and the F-150, the same type of system. Um, you know, it's coming on the Nissan Aria later this year with the version two, of pro pilot assist. Um, you know, other manufacturers are doing it. And, you know, what I found, you know, right from the first time I drove it, you know, on the, on the original launch drive of the CT6 with Super Cruise was that um It reduces the driver workload, some of the traditional driver workloads, but it creates new cognitive loads that you didn't have before because you, you have to stay, you have to stay more, you have to stay alert without being as engaged in the driving task.
0: Right. And that exact, that's exactly the challenge that I have a really hard time squaring is if it's going to do the thing and I'm going to still have to actively pay attention I don't want it to do the thing because it's impossible to actually pay attention, you know, and we've seen that. Like we see see people with dynamic cruise control, not even level two. I see a lot of them on their phones.
1: Try try (laughs) doing it over a 450 mile drive. You
0: know? Yeah. You're just going to tune out. You're just like, ah, it's it's, thing seems to have it, you know, fine. That this is why cars need to be simpler and have, have less of this stuff in it and way more terrifying. So lots of horsepower, Tiny, tiny tires, so very little traction. <laughs> Awful chassis balance. We should all drive 427 Cobras. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, but I'm serious. You know, it's it's almost like why people um, why people like riding motorcycles because it forces you to concentrate. You know, and and I, it's that important. Like, it, I know in a lot of places there's no other way to get around than the car, and driving to me is an active you know, thing that I enjoy. It's the most complex task I generally take on on a daily basis. Uh, and I like that other people it's a chore. So they, they yeah. want automated. But the, pr- the problem is that when you automate it so well, even when it's not full automation, it lulls you into, um, a false sense of security. Yeah. You, you kind of ignore it. And, Then they've got to figure out how to transition you back to paying attention, figuring out what's going on. Why is the system telling me there's an issue? What do I have to do here? Um, And you're traveling, you know, at sixty miles an hour. You're going a mile every minute. So you're like, that's that's a lot of feet per second. I forget how many it is, but it's enough. It's like five hundred feet per second. No,
1: yeah, thirty-two point two feet per second.
0: I think. Okay, (laughs) five hundred feet per second. Stupid.
2: no, That's I get right. that, I but I do think that thing. I think that one of the challenges is that we don't necessarily know the optimal times to use this.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I so <sighs> like like Sam said though, like never the system should <laughs> monitor the driver and assist yeah. the driver yeah. when there's an issue versus the system taking over. And like, so it's almost like this is a parlor trick that got out of hand.
1: Yeah, I mean, like what stability control does, um, you know, what um, what Toyota is doing with their guardian system, you know, which is using the same types of sensors, the, you know, the automated driving sensors to detect, you know, when the when the vehicle is getting into a situation, you know, where the driver is not responding correctly, then intervening, you know, so having the automation supervise the human instead of the other way around.
2: So. Does this, does Super Cruise, and we didn't have this opportunity, is it like the Audi traffic assist? Like, can you use it in traffic?
1: Yeah, yeah, you can use it in traffic. I did.
2: So, I mean, I think that that's, if it can be used to prevent things, annoying things like fender benders and stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's great for that.
2: You know, there, so there is there are there are times and places for this uh, where if I know, you know, like, like even even earlier this evening on I-95, for whatever reason, there was a lot of traffic. It probably was a leftover accident, you know, in the residual because we were kind of going waves. So. That would have been really convenient because all of a sudden we were stopping, and then all and then all of a sudden we would be going up to sixty, you know, for a short period of time. And then all of a sudden we were stopping again, and it was just. Yeah. And, just, and, and it actually I is.
1: Yeah. Like, <laughs> it actually is really nice in scenarios like that. You know, like I, yeah, you know, the last time I drove a CT6 with Super Cruise, I was in California, in Northern California, and you know I was driving back from Petaluma uh, back down to uh, San Jose, and I you know, came across and drove over the Bay Bridge mm. and, you know, from, you know, as I was approaching the Bay Bridge, you know, I, I was hands off the entire time, you know, coming onto the Bay Bridge, um, and all the way across the Bay Bridge until, you know, we got to the end of the bridge, you know, and that was the point where, uh, I finally had to, to take over, but, you know, early morning, you know, rush hour traffic across the Bay Bridge, you know, it's exactly that, it's stop and go you know, and i i just sat there you know leaned back you know hands on my lap you know obviously had to pay attention but right um, did you yeah, is that the
2: direction is, of the toll booth or was it the other way
1: uh the other way can't remember
2: now okay yeah the, okay. i think
1: the toll booth is coming back it towards is, east yes
2: yeah, back yeah. towards yeah because that's, that's the, the thing, the too, way, is that yeah. like, how does it handle that? Obviously, you have to take over it at, at that oh, point.
1: Yeah, you definitely have to take yeah. over you know, if you've got to stop for something like that. And it's not it's not going to stop for traffic signals and things like that. Right. Which is why you can only use it on divided highways.
2: Uh, OK. I mean, I thought it was a it was a very good system at the price point that this vehicle is. I think the Bolt overall did a lot of things really well and. You know, I I like the fact that that it's already come down to from a Cadillac all the way down to the Chevy Bolt for availability, because I do think that there are instances where it can be useful. But for day to day driving, you know, like if you're just running errands or something, it does seem a little over the top.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the. Getting you know the the price of the bolt you know is another thing you know they they reduce the price they're reducing the price of the bolt for the 2022 models so the the regular bolt the base price is going from 37 five to thirty two thousand dollars and that includes delivery charge um, and for the bolt EUV it's thirty four thousand dollars by comparison that Mach E that we were talking about that was so much more engaging to drive you know that all wheel drive premium extended range Mach E is fifty five thousand dollars
2: I know but but Ford still has federal tax credits and right. GM does so not. So you're,
1: you're down to, four, you're still down 47, you know, you're talking $12,000 more. It's, it's a significantly more expensive vehicle than the bull. It is.
2: Well, and again, I think I was just, one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up specifically was because I think I wasn't factoring in enough the size of the motor, the, the, the horsepower, things like that. Like I, I sort of had fallen into this false sense that every electric vehicle had great torque. And the reality is that that's not the case. It has instant torque, but right. your torque is still
0: limited. Still limits, yeah. We've got a bunch of questions coming up, um, but the first news topic that, and only... <laughs> this topic that we've, we've we been really want to hit for on
1: for nearly an hour now. Yeah. About yeah.
0: The um, well, and I was going to actually mention the Burt. Was it Burt Backrack? Uh, Do you know the way to San Jose? Yes, that's it is Burt Backrack. Right? Like, um,
2: <laughs> now
0: <laughs> i got, got that in my head. That. Thank that's the second
1: reference to that I've heard this week. Oh, really? Uh, somebody on a I mean, podcast brought it up is, the other day.
0: Yeah. He was, I mean, pr- prolific. uh he certainly the, was. It's some. My my daughter's getting into to music, and so I am torturing her with the original versions of songs. So she really likes um, the the always oh, something there to remind me. Oh uh, yes, n- naked eyes. But I was like, oh yeah, check this out. The, it was originally a Burt Backrack song for Dionne Warwick uh, as well. And she she was like, that's weird. I'm so, um, going through his back catalog. Totally off the point. Back on track. Um, so the Jeep Jeep Cherokee Grand Cherokee. It was a news item last week that we didn't quite get to, but the uh, Cherokee Nation has suggested that maybe it's time for them to drop the name from their automobile because that's kind of like, I mean, it's like naming your car the, you know, I don't know, something else of European descent. You know, like the, uh, it's it's it sounds it's it's kind of weird, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I don't know. That's probably know, had- terrible. Yes, yeah. Centurion. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> but um I can, thats not right. I can—I uh, can see how it's offensive to the Cherokee Nation. This is just, just more of like, hey, yep, you guys once again are stealing our stuff and profiting from it. And last week, it FCA and Stellantis had issued some statements that were sensitive. They said, you know, we understand this and uh, we'll look at it. We're open to conversations and, and stuff. And just today, uh, Stellantis CEO Carlos Tavares said, uh, if if there's a problem, we'll solve it. Check out the hook. Well, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. So,
2: uh, so what's interesting about this is it reminds me of the Land Lakes situation well, where they yeah, had a Native the- American woman on it.
0: You and- know, the Land Lakes thing was weird because that that – the woman that was yeah. on the uh, Land Lakes packaging was actually painted by a Native American artist.
2: Well, and there was actually Native Americans that said that they really liked her being on it because they liked the representation of it. And yeah. so this is like many of these issues. It, there's always two sides to it. I suggested. Not always. Prior- well, a lot of times there are, but yeah. I suggested um to Sam that they call it the National Football League, National Football Team, or the National <laughs> Washington football team, or whatever the <laughs> Yeah,
0: no, well, they, they had that. It was it was. It was like, wasn't it this year they, they had the it was Washington football? Football team. team. Yes. Yeah. The Washington oh. football team. So no, I think
2: um I think that it's it would be well and and you know what, um Dan, you had made a comment. This is why you like alphanumerics. I can't stand alphanumerics because it doesn't mean anything. People
0: that don't like them. Right.
2: Um, And, you know, it's funny. One of our former colleagues uh, works for a window company now. And he's like, the name of the door is like XYZ blah. blah." And I'm like, no, what's the name of the door? He goes, oh, no, that's the name of the door. (laughs) It's like a serial number. So I think that there's, I mean, I like to have things that have a name to them, but it's very, very difficult nowadays because. People are very aware of implications of that, so it's sort of like when they sign up with a celebrity, and then that celebrity is, you know, caught in a different vehicle of a different brand or something. Right. Um, I'm not talking about Will Ferrell at all, uh, but you know, it's <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, but uh, you know, there, so there's the challenge of ha- naming things, and then I think the other challenge that they've got here is the the nature of that name and the, the weight that it carries, the historical weight that it carries and are reawakening to, uh, to that, that history. And so you can, you can on the one hand shrug and say like, why didn't, you know, why is it all of a sudden offensive? And I, I think that's less the point. I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not kind all of a offensive. sudden, and, you
1: know, it- People have been offended. You know, Native Americans have been offended by the use of these names for a long time. It's just that you know only recently has the rest of the population started to come around to the idea that that these names are in fact offensive to you know the use of these names for commercial reasons or you know as a mascot for a sports team you know is offensive to to people. Well,
0: it's- Without, I think part of it is just, it's like without consultation or partnership. So I'm glad that they're they're saying you know let's try to work this out. Um, if there's if there's some kind of compromise, you know, talking about it, opening the dialogue, it's a it's a great step. Um, and and I hope that the Cherokee Nation and Stellantis can can figure it out because it, you know I'd be pretty upset if somebody named their car the Dan Roth. And I, I can only imagine what the car would be, but you know, I'd be like, without, without telling me, I'd be like, come on now, Mercedes It'd be wagon, a, be a
1: reboot of the right. Volvo two hundred and forty. Yeah. Uh, but I mean.
0: no, I think
2: it's um, there is. I think there's certainly an opportunity for dialogue, and yeah. because you know that when they came up with this name in what was it 1970 40, something
1: years. So what? 60s, I think.
0: Yeah, it was, it was the late sixties. It was on the, for the mid seventies. Um, well, the Jeep has sold the
2: compact, right? the Cherokee compact SUV since the mid seventies. So the, the, the grand Cherokee, but you know, there yeah. wasn't a native American person in the room right. is my point. Oh, no, right? absolutely. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. And so um, I think that the opportunity for dialogue is, is fantastic. Cause and you know, to have that conversation about what that really means. So it would be, you know, it's, I think that people often struggle, the people that are not Native American can often struggle with the idea of, you know, this is an iconic name. It's sort of like giving up Wrangler, but it's not, it is different unless there are, you know, cowboy Wranglers out there that are offended by it. But I think that, you know, it's, it's something that needs to be talked about for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's – it's it's a good development. Um, let's open the dialogue. Let's talk about it. And I want to see what they come up with. I, I think – and it, it's – you know, my personality type is one that I like, um, the alphanumerics. And, like, you would not believe the unbelievable string of just equipment names, like recording gear and stuff. We just, like – you can have entire paragraphs that are very little besides numbers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm going to plug the U47 into the 1272 and then I'm going to run it into the 1176 and we're going to. Well, I would, I would love to hear from our listeners on
2: this topic. I think, I think I would love to, to, so please write in on the topic of the Jeep Cherokee and Jeep Grand Cherokee. And what are your thoughts on, on rebranding? And and
1: do you have any thoughts on what you'd like to see it named?
2: That is way above my pay grade. (laughs) (laughs) uh,
0: Well, so they had before they brought the Cherokee, just the plain Cherokee back, they had it called the Liberty, Mm -hmm. which I mean, okay. That's at least, uh, it's, it's pretty inoffensive. Um, So Again, I'm just going to go for like an alphanumeric. Just like, start with a number. Like, uh, Cause you know, and it's funny too, like uh, us car geeks, like I, my grand Cherokee is a WK2. So. So yeah, maybe WK2? just call it a
2: platform.
0: Call it the platform, it the platform a, name. Right. <laughs> we, we uh, that's the mark of the true car geek, right? We all talk about platforms. We don't, and, and so, you know, when you've got a Except live one. Most of one the people start, buying
1: these things are not true car geeks. They, you know? No, of course not. I don't want to buy a Jeep WK2.
2: I think it'd be interesting to hear from our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. All right. <laughs> and speaking of,
1: <laughs> we heard from them. Yes. We got, we have a whole bunch of uh, questions and comments um, that we haven't gotten to. Um, and so let's start off with um, Travis S <clears throat> and um, Travis writes. Uh, I'm curious about your thoughts on ease of entry in newer cars. And this, uh, You know, this is something we've talked about before, you know, for you, Rebecca, even though Mm -hmm. uh, your stature is quite different from. He says, I'm a big guy, six foot five and 350 plus. Um, I feel like entry is getting tighter on new cars. I rarely had any issues with getting in and out of anything that wasn't a Miata. I had an 09 Mazda three that I fit in with plenty of room and zero difficulty getting in and out. I replaced it with a Mazda 16 Mazda six. And despite the car being much larger in size, getting in and out was really uncomfortable. The newer Mazda was very narrow between the steering wheel and the Uh, B-pillar. I've started uh, shopping again, and so far, everything I've looked at is similar. Very tight entry. Is that something you've noticed? I never see, I've never seen it mentioned in reviews anywhere, but I've experienced it and it's taken many cars out of consideration due to how difficult or uncomfortable entry and exit is. Despite my size, I prefer low riding hatchbacks or can settle for sedans. I have no issue with entry and exit from my wife's Kia Soul. But I could fill a two-hour podcast with my hatred of that car and the Hyundai Kia dealership <laughs> experience.
0: Well, now you have to tell us why you hate the Soul because I, I think that's oh. one of the most charming cars on the road. <laughs> I, I love the deals. Soul. That's so cool. <laughs> why? Uh,
1: my, my random thoughts are that the B pillar is further forward for easier entry to the back seat or better crash protection, or if your tinfoil hat is handy, um, they are making it. <laughs> uh, they're making it a tighter squeeze into cars to push the ever increasing number of large people towards SUVs and crossovers. Uh, tinfoil hat off.
0: <laughs> I um, I think that the dimension you're probably looking for is the the, the door opening dimensions, right? And, and Pretty much, yeah. I don't know if that has... I, I don't know how easy that is to obtain. Like, that's probably not something that you're going to find in the commonly available like Chrome automotive database that every site sort of scrapes for their information when you're car shopping. So you almost have to bring your tape measure and he's talking about like a pillar to B pillar versus how that's normally measured diagonally. So it's, I think good.
2: I mean, my experience with things like this has been the, and interestingly on Mazda's in particular has been the slope of the A pillar that the slope of the A pillar is so dramatic for stylized design. And also the, um, and I, I don't know that this necessarily affects, me, but the greenhouse, you know, with how high the belt line is and then how short the windows are, that affects where the seat is, where the seat goes. So, you know, that affects like, your
1: visibility and, you know, very great. Right, but other like,
2: factors. I mean, what's interesting, like even in my brand new. Alfa Romeo Stelvio, whose name is Sergio uh, for obvious reasons. (laughs) So they actually, it was funny. I was talking to one of my girlfriends. I'm like, well, this will motivate me to lose weight because it's actually hard to get out because I feel like, you know, the bolsters on the seats are so high that I kind of have to like squeeze my ass out of there. They actually have an easy exit entry and accuracy do this as well, where the seat goes back automatically. Right. And it is much easier to get in and out of. But I hate it. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. I'm getting used to it. But so I think what's interesting about Travis's situation is that I'm just wondering if even if if the roof line is a little bit shorter, but the seat like where the seating position is. I know like one of the reasons that I bought my Buick Encore Coco was because for whatever reason, my mother could get in and out of that easier than any other car that I had. And I do remember we had a Mazda 6 one time and she and I were getting in it and we both bumped our heads on the (laughs) A-pillar.
0: Yeah. I I think Travis is right to a certain degree that they're sort of messing with you. Um, Not on purpose to, you know, encourage any kind of uh, lifestyle change, but just they've got X amount of dimensions to play with and they've got to fit all that stuff and people into that space. So, you know, given the styling that they're trying to achieve and crash safety, like it's kind of a combo of all of that stuff that has wound us up with, um, his, his impression of, of tight end. So, yeah.
1: Oh, go ahead. Sorry. uh, I was just going to say, you know, I, I haven't actually measured them, but I, I would not be surprised if the door aperture. So the actual opening that you go through has gotten like for a comparably sized car today versus 20 years ago or 25 years ago, if that actual opening has gotten Mm. smaller, even for a car that's the same size, because, you know, pillars have gotten bigger. Um, and, and that is primarily for crash safety, uh, you know, you you, you mentioned uh, the, the higher belt lines, you know, on a lot of cars, and that is partly driven by styling, but also partly driven by, by crash safety, because cars today, you know, before they can be put on sale, have to go through a whole battery of, of crash tests, you know, the, you know straight on into a cement wall, um, you know, a small barrier uh, offset test, you know, frontal offset test, um, side impact tests, you know, hitting a pole, uh, having, you know, the equivalent of a car you know ram into the side of it rear rear tests and so all of these things you know the the structure particularly the structure around the passenger compartment Mm -hmm. has to withstand that impact and you know withstand those impacts you know and then you know the doors be able to open uh so you can get out and you know it's remarkable what they've done you know i uh, not last year, but in, in 2019, I went down to uh, um, Honda's engineering facilities in Ohio uh, to their, their crash test facility. And we got to witness a crash test of a Honda Civic. And they did um, the small offset rigid barrier crash test, which is a particularly brutal test. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, you know, so they set up a barrier that overlaps um, 25% to so one quarter of the way across the width of the car. On the driver's side, and they slam into it at forty miles an hour, uh, wow. or forty kilometers. Isn't that an hour, one of the most?
2: Isn't that one of the most common crashes?
1: It is. It's a very common crash because you know, yeah. if you think about it, you know, especially you know, if somebody drifts over the center line, you know, two are Approaching cruise. each other because they're not using super cruise. <laughs> it drifts over the center line, you know, and you know, glances off. So you have a you know, that partial impact. So it's not a full right. head on, but a partial impact, and that's actually a really, really hard test to pass and to design a structure that can absorb that energy. Um, and you know, so they did this test with a with a Honda Civic and, you know, the whole front of the car the front corner of the car was completely destroyed, but the, the driver's door could still open. Wow. Which was remarkable. And yeah, uh, so you know this is these are the kind of standards they have to design to today, so that inherently drives you know bigger B pillars, for example, wider B pillars, you know, to, to have enough structure there to absorb that impact to withstand that impact. And so, uh, like I said, I, I, I don't, I can't say for sure that the apertures are smaller, the opening is smaller, but I think that may very well be the case. And so, you know, and then you know, to what you said, Rebecca. Uh, you know, in terms, you know, some of the styling things, you know, the angle of the A pillar I've, you know, I'm eleven, and I've had some vehicles where, you know, when I get in, you know, I hit my head on the A pillar, uh, just Mm -hmm. because of the angle of it. So it's, it's not, it's not an uncommon thing.
2: I think also that these, that the designs for things like safety, they are, um, Issues with them are highlighted by people of extreme size, small like me, or big like Travis, Mm -hmm. right? So you know they are designed for that medium person. (laughs) And actually, Jill Simonello, who who we should really have on the show because we talk about her a lot, she wrote an article recently talking about how more women tend to die in car accidents, and so they're looking at crash test dummies to see if they're really accommodating. A five foot four average size woman versus a five foot ten average size man, and um, well mm-hmm. enough. And I know or in Jill's is, you know. case,
1: a four foot eleven woman.
2: Or in Jill's <laughs> case, yes, because I feel enormous next to her, which is saying something. <laughs> but
0: but that, it, it's you know, true, it's, and it's it's been true for a really long time, and that's why you know, the first airbags were yes fatal, and and you know they're supposed to catch the what is it two hundred two hundred something pound six foot tall the average crash test dummy that was.
2: And they do use different ones. They have like pregnant women, they have children, things like that. Well, that was something we
1: saw at at Honda's facility. You know, they, you know, they've got some of the latest generation dummies, you know, they've got a variety of sizes, as you said, you know, pregnant, simulating pregnant women, you know, uh, males and females and children of different sizes and ages and shapes um, that they're, that they're using to test these now. And, but it's, you know, it's a really difficult problem to, to be able to accommodate all these different variations.
2: Yes, for sure. So, Travis, we feel your pain.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next up, Chuck Goolsby uh, writes in uh, We've all had some variation of Rebecca's dealer experience, <laughs> which thankfully has been now sorted. Yes. Uh, I haven't bought a new car from a dealer since 2002, and I imagine I never will again. While I have many of the same reasons to loathe, the, the loathe Tesla as you three do. I, did, I, did, I do not loathe I, Tesla. We do not loathe Tesla. We, I may loathe Elon Musk, but I do not right. loathe Tesla. I, I don't even loathe Elon friends. Musk.
2: Right. <laughs> <Anyway>. Yeah, well. <laughs> but,
1: but the one thing I've applauded them on since the beginning is their stance of dealerships. Yeah. Uh, in the age of online shopping, there's really no reason whatsoever to subject, subject, oneself, subject oneself to the torture that is retail car buying. It is the only consumer purchase left where the price isn't the price and the process is needlessly goddamn frustrating.
2: Well, he hasn't worked with a contractor lately. Yeah,
1: or or bought a house, or a home.
2: Um,
0: (laughs) Well, but
1: dealer franchise laws are as anachronistic as dinosaurs, and you know therein lies the problem. And should all be flushed from the books. I have not, and I will not ever buy another new car again until I can just order it online, and it appears in my driveway a few days later. I don't care if it is Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or any other tech zillionaire who makes that happen. Dealers can't die off fast enough.
2: Tell us how you really feel.
0: <laughs> I don't. I don't disagree that the dealer experience is a holdover and it's bad, and the franchise laws are sort of entrenched. The problem is that those dealer groups are super, super powerful lobbyists, and they donate a lot of money to political campaigns, and so they have the ear of the people who can keep them entrenched.
1: Well, especially you know uh, local and state uh, legislators, because you know these are you know, often local businesses. You know, that are, you know, they do, they do well for themselves and, you know, they get, the dealers get together, they have trade groups, they get together and they lobby extensively to, to maintain these franchise laws. Uh, And
0: to be fair, dealers are not all bad. Right. They're not all awful. There's jobs at dealerships and there's investment and and, um, overhead that they need to take on. The thing that frustrates me about Tesla's experience is their purchase experience seems pretty good, pretty smooth, pretty well thought out.
1: Their service experience is a whole other issue though.
0: Right. And that's probably the most important thing is, is you, if you're going to sell a product, you've got to be able to support your customers and the customer service experience, really, especially for a premium product. Or if you have a premium experience for a product, that's non-premium, like that's going to win you customer loyalty. And they're not advertising. They're not um, doing a lot of the traditional sales stuff. So at a certain point, Tesla's going to plateau. But beyond that, like you're not going to get repeat customers if you just make it such a terrible experience to own the thing. If the thing breaks, you know it's a car. It's complex. It's going to break. People can't be without their cars for long stretches of time. Tesla customers can because it's not their only car usually, and they have situations where their life accommodates that. But somebody buying a twenty-five thousand dollar EV, that's not the case. They they have different pressures in their lives, and so they need to be able to have that common dealer service experience at the very least. Um, So that needs to be wrapped up. If you're going to change the sales experience, cool. I'm down. I do not like the sales experience, (laughs) but I like the fact that I can go to the dealer for my car that's in town a few miles away and get it serviced and know that they know the thing they're looking at and it's going to be fixed. And and
1: if they don't have parts in stock, they can usually get them within a day or two.
0: Right. So (laughs) I like that part of it. I
2: think, I think that the, the, even though I agree with everything you said about the dealer franchise, about the local and state level lobbies and such. The thing though now is the dealer that is willing to evolve, the dealer that is willing to, you know, to to automate their processes, to do the no-haggle pricing. Even All my, winners. you know, even my experience when I said, look, is there any way that you can you can bring the car here to my home? Because I was gonna have to figure out like, How Like somebody else is going to have to go to the dealer with me to get me there and then to get me back because Uber is not really happening right now. Right. So it was it was a lovely experience to have him come to, you know, we sat outside, we went through all the paperwork and it was a really positive experience. So the dealers, I mean just look at what Sam said earlier, his daughter was willing to drive 2 hours to get what she wanted. So the dealer that provides that type of service. Also we're seeing more and more competition on used cars from Carvana, from you know right. people that deliver the car to you. So you know there is opportunities for dealers to improve on the experience, but they have to take the initiative and they have to do it. Without uh, needing it to be mandated, you know, by I mean, competition need, needs to basically mandate what they do. But there's there is opportunity there to improve. And, and,
1: and for, for what it's worth, you know, if they're, you know, there's obviously been a lot of pain over the last year due to the pandemic. But one area that actually has moved forward significantly in the last 12 months is online, our online car buying. Yes. Most dealers, most new car dealers ah. across the United States have, if they didn't already have an online system, they have implemented online systems to go in and, and shop for a car and, and do most of the transaction online. And, yes. you know, especially bigger dealers, most most dealers, most bigger dealers are offering you know, uh, like at-home delivery and things like that, and and even pickup for service. Uh, so you know they'll come and pick up your car and and bring it back. So um, the the system is evolving, and especially and now as we get into more and more sales of EVs, manufacturers are working with their dealers. They're they're getting more involved in moving a lot more of the purchase process online you know um for for the maki when they when ford launched the maki you know they did online ordering you know dealers have vehicles in inventory now you know so you can go into a dealership and, and buy one now but initially you know all the orders were done online you you went online you you configured your car and you then you picked a dealer nearby you where you would finish off the transaction and take delivery. Um, GM has said, you know, when they launched the Hummer EV later this year, you know, you will do the entire purchase process online. And the only thing you'll do with the dealer, you'll select a local dealer where you'll take delivery. All, everything else, the financing, everything else is going to be done online. Volvo just this week announced the same thing for all their EVs going forward. It's going to be online sales only, you know, and again, you know, you'll finish it you'll finish off, you know, uh, with taking delivery from a, a local dealer, but the the whole purchase process will be done online. So, so there, how does
2: a test drive fit into that?
1: So, for for test drives, um, you know, you again, it'll have to be you know, working, you know, selecting a dealer, and they will they can deliver a car to you for a test drive.
0: Okay, so I can see how this is unpopular with dealers, given the fact that it it upends their their ability to, to upsell sell the car right <laughs> yeah. like, but it also it turns them into basically just a service center of the parent corporation and they're they're not the parent corporation mm-hmm. the dealers are independent corporations yeah. and so i want to know what the negotiations were like for volvo to be able to, <laughs> to do that you know because it's if if i'm a car dealer owner and most owners don't own a single store they're they're corporate owners they own multiple stores their ownership groups and they're they like they make millions of dollars on this stuff uh to to really have their hand forced to shift their business like that has got to be unpopular but they're but the cons first of
2: all i think a lot of like what sam said the pandemic forced some of these changes
0: yeah, but and, and the and consumer like said, the is forcing
2: them though too
0: yeah, and the dealers that get it are going to be the ones that win. Exactly. Yeah, like th- those. Th- that's just good customer service. I don't see why you you wouldn't do that. Uh, even back in the before times, you know? <laughs> just like, yeah, sure, we'll write the we'll write the loan at your house. That's that's fine. You know, it doesn't it doesn't trap you in that F and I office uh, for an hour trying to sell you the, the you know the. ED insurance, (laughs) yeah, the ceramic coating or like whatever the crap is, but they they probably take a hit on on margin. Even by just doing that, like moving away from those aggressive, abusive tactics costs them money. The, the, it's one of those things like the better it is for the consumer, the more pleasant the experience, the less the deal. No, I
2: mean, stuff. I think that we are looking at the blockbuster scenario, like the dealer, the dealers that cling to the blockbuster model are going to go out. And the ones that are willing to evolve to say, if this is what you need me to do, let me let me rethink my whole business then. And, and maybe, and, and even the servicing of EVs is different, you know,
1: mm-hmm. yeah,
2: so, right. So they have to, about well, they have to prepare for, and anticipate these kinds of changes. And,
1: and this is exactly why, you know, GM, you know, when they announced, you know, the, the Cadillac Lyric, uh, you know, they said to their dealers, you know, to all the, you know, eight, there were 850 Cadillac dealers across the United States. They said to the dealers, look, you're going to have to invest, you know, Cadillac is going to go all electric by the end of the decade. You're going to have to invest, you know, in parts and tools and training for your staff. Um, and if you don't want to do that, you know, and it's probably going to cost you about two hundred to $250,000, you know, to, to put in chargers and get the, the, the specialized tools they need for to service EVs. If you don't want to do that, that's fine. Tell us now. We will buy back your franchise, right. and you know about 150 out of those 850 dealers said, "Yeah, you know what? We don't sell enough Cadillacs to justify, you know." And most of these, you know, are in small, you know, smaller dealerships that are also selling other stuff. We don't sell enough Cadillacs a year, you know, uh, to to justify that kind of investment. You know, cut us a check, and you know, so they they GM bought back the franchises for, on average, I think about five hundred thousand dollars each. Um, and just bottom up so they're, they're, they won't be selling Cadillacs anymore in the future. And, yeah, and that's uh, we're going to see, see more of that going forward.
2: I, I think so, too. That's the kind of, um, there's the kinds of changes that we will see as, as the industry continues to evolve. And speaking of EVs.
1: Yes. Um, so from Joshua, uh, he said uh, on your most recent episode, we we're talking a lot about how many of the manufacturers are going all electric. Talking about talk about this argument, the production of these car batteries is worse for the environment than the fossil fuel engines are. I think maybe this used to be true early on. Maybe what what is the what is the case? Uh, Can you shed any light on this? Um, Keep the sunny shot. Keep the shiny side up. Um, (laughs) So uh, yes, uh, Joshua, I'll I'll include a link to one example of a life cycle analysis study that was done. There's there's been many of these done over the last several years uh, that look at the the full product life cycle from raw materials to grave, you know, to scrapping vehicle um, and look at the total environmental impact. The reality is that, yes, it does take more energy, more resources to build batteries than it does to build internal combustion engines. Um, And so the, the, the energy and emissions form from production of an EV is greater than production of an internal combustion vehicle. But, Once that vehicle is in operation, the reduction even even with coal, you know, but the you know the the mix of where electricity is coming from is changing dramatically every year, and it's you know coal you know is like less than a quarter of our uh, electricity production in the U.S. now, Um, you know, and it's it's going to continue to decline. Uh, You know, even you know natural gas, uh, you know, is probably is going to be declining, so. the overall emissions um, from use of the vehicle, from use of an EV, is so much less, even factoring in power generation. That uh, because you know one thing that people don't think about is that it actually takes a lot of energy to refine oil as well, and that's a you know there's a lot of emissions and a lot of energy that's used in oil turning crude oil into gasoline. Um, so those life cycle analysis studies that have been done. Um, you know, on average show roughly about a 40% reduction in total life cycle emissions from an EV, you know, even factoring in the, the production and recycling, about a 40% reduction in total emissions over the life of the vehicle from cradle to grave. So
0: Yeah, and the, like that's – so one of the other issues that you have with oil itself too is like you wind up getting stuff like methane that you can't just capture and use – and you don't want to vent it, you got to flare it because if it's such a powerful greenhouse gas, it, you're actually it's
1: better off. It's, a, it's at least an order of magnitude worse uh, as a greenhouse gas than uh, carbon dioxide is.
0: So the stuff you put in your tank has that ongoing impact. You know, it's, it, it's not, it's not just done at the time of production. It, like that's forever as you need to fuel your car with, with petroleum fuels. And then you, you're, burning fuel so um it, it's one of, that's a tough argument though like because it's used in bad faith a lot of times that you know the, the rare earths too like the the mining that goes on for those and, and where they're produced um and and the labor that's used to produce them sometimes it's not great
1: yeah and, and that, it's, that, it's that, that's that's actually if there's and, anything that's the real problem it's some of those raw materials, the mining of those raw materials, like cobalt, and rare, particularly cobalt. Um, yeah. But some, you know, some of the other materials as well, and you know that's something that you know manufacturers are working to address by trying to uh, come up with designs that reduce the use of some of those materials, like the new, you know, GM's new Altium cells. They reduced the cobalt content by 90 percent. Um, so there's a lot less cobalt that's going to be used, you know, other, uh, other manufacturers are trying to source cobalt from different, different, uh, regions of the world, not from, uh, central Africa where most of the cobalt has come from so far. So those, those are issues that need to be addressed, but you know, then again, you know, there's issues with where oil comes from as well.
0: Yeah. Look, anytime there's, there's that kind of industry that, and, and opportunity, um, it's, it's really hard to squeeze out, um, not, not even corruption, but just, you know, that, that element yeah. <laughs> of it, you know, like it's just, just shady stuff. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's a circular argument. Like it, it's, it's like a, it's almost like vehicular. What about it's like, Oh yeah, your car is bad. Oh yeah. Your car is worse. Like, come on.
1: No. Like, <laughs> all right. So let's, uh, let's finish up the last couple here. Um, I can see Rebecca is fading. Uh, well, I
2: just realized that I've never turned on my recorder.
1: Oh, that's all
0: right. <laughs> so I'm sorry.
1: All right. Uh, so, uh, it's okay. But how many
0: I've, times did you refill the glass?
1: I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've got a recording going here. So. Good. Thank you. Right. Um, so from Joe Canale, um, I love wheel bearings and I'm a devoted listener. My wife and I love our Telluride, which we added yes. uh, to our consideration based on your review. Nice. Uh, now my mother-in-law is looking at the Mazda CX-5, which I feel uh, like I've heard your review, but I cannot find an easy way to search for which, uh, which podcast would have this. Even on your site, there are like 29 pages, and doing a find <laughs> per page for CX5 is painful. What am I doing wrong? Uh, thanks again. Mm. Love the show. Joe, if you go to the top of the page, you will find a, a, a link there that says search. Click on that link. Type in CX5. You will find all the references to CX5 on all from all the pages.
0: So uh, here's the other thing you can do. You can go to Google, and you can write mazda cx5 or cx-5 and you can then type site colon wheel bearings, dot media um and that will be using the google search algorithm to search the page versus or search the domain versus using Whatever we have built into WordPress, which well that's actually know. what that's actually
1: might, what we' the the search link is it's doing is using, using Google. Google it's doing that <laughs> custom Google search I gave you
0: the hard way um, but yeah I mean and there's tags too right like yeah. that's it's a good reminder though we should be better about tagging uh, I, um, I do try to tag tagging, put,
1: put yeah. add tags for all the cars we talk about uh on each yeah. episode um but uh yeah, if you look there and also you know the other thing that the Google search will do is it will. I've start. We started a while ago putting transcripts, text transcripts, on all the episodes, so it'll search the transcripts as well for references. So if there's anything else you're looking for, you know, that's not in the show notes, you know, uh, it can often find those from the transcripts.
0: But I can tell you that uh, episode ninety six, we talked about the two thousand nineteen Mazda CX five. There, there you
2: go. go. I and I will will encourage Joe's mother in law to test out the infotainment system on the Mazda CX-5 because that is the one that is not not only is it not touchscreen which I know um, Sam likes but it's when you use Android Auto or Apple CarPlay it takes away the organic voice recognition and such of the system so I just thought uh, that's right so if, you're, if you listen
1: to satellite yeah. radio um, you know that may not be the best option for you.
2: I've actually heard a, a number. To drive. Otherwise, it's a great car to drive. It's an absolutely fantastic car to drive. I've actually recently heard a number of people talk about the difficulty that they've had with changing the radio station in the Mazdas in the new with the new infotainment system. But if that is not your jam, like if you don't care about the infotainment system, it's a fantastic car to drive. It's well designed, it's beautiful interior, had a great time driving it, all, the, all that good stuff.
1: And, you know, if you if you like to have a multitude of, of voice uh, recognition systems at your disposal, um, you know, some of the newer vehicles like like the uh, um, Chrysler Pacifica uh, with the 21 t- Chrysler Pacifica with Uconnect 5 lets you choose from either the native Chrysler voice recognition system, uh, Amazon Alexa, uh, Google Assistant or uh, Siri, <laughs> depending on which go. phone you have connected. And awesome. same thing, same thing true in um uh, uh, the, uh, Cadillac Escalade I've got in the driveway right now, you can, you can use either one. So
2: <laughs> awesome.
1: Um, let us know
2: right. if she buys it, Joe. <laughs> yeah. All
1: right. Last one, uh, from James Ty. Hi everyone. Uh, after all the discussion on freight charges, I thought you might be interested to know that Ontario has a law that says dealers must advertise a price that includes all fees. Those include freight, uh, PDI pre-delivery inspection, administrative fees, uh, Uh, The OMVIC fee, the Ontario Motor Vehicle Industry Council, a fee we pay to fund the organization that enforces these rules Uh, and uh, an AC tax uh, tax for air conditioning. The only things that are not required to be included are sales tax and licensing fee. Um, They're also not. Uh, this this is interesting. I didn't realize this. They are not allowed to sell for higher than the MSRP price. So no insane dealer markups on hot products. Any, everything is MSRP at worst. So whatever the advertised price is, that's the only thing they can charge you for. They can't charge you anything extra.
2: That's so interesting. It's funny to me too, because the housing market is different. When they put out a a, a listing price, that's actually pretty much the minimum you are expected to get into a bidding war in
1: Canada. Uh, Oh yeah. In in Canada, it it varies in some, some places that is often the case. It's definitely been the case in California for many years now. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll be in Connecticut as well for you.
2: Yeah. Yeah, But it's just, it's fascinating to me that it's that, I mean, this is, this is really, really interesting that it's MSRP or where so there's no dealer markups are not allowed. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, you know, that's, that's Canada where
1: (laughs) they, the automakers, they might as well be communists.
0: Well, (laughs) no, but they, they can, it's the North American market, so they can turn around and overcharge us chumps here in the States.
1: You mean like (laughs) they do for pharmaceuticals?
0: To subsidize the Canadian fair pricing. (laughs) Uh, No, I have no idea if that's what happens. I'm sorry. I don't want it. I'm, I'm
1: so that's very for, interesting. For, for, for what it's worth, most of the uh, sticker prices are uh, somewhat higher in Canada, anyway. So
0: yes, that's well, true. it's metric
1: dollars. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, James, that's very interesting. Thank you for letting us know about no, no, that.
0: I, I would love that because it, that's one of the biggest sources of trepidation uh, when you purchase a car is that the price is not the price. And I think that that's why when we we get back to stuff like Carvana and and CarMax and that experience is the the, the price is clear. And there's,
1: there's none of that, you know, especially for anything that's a mandatory fee, like that freight charge, Mm -hmm. if it's something that you can't opt out of, just include it in the price that you advertise. That's right. You know, simple as that. It's one thing, you know, if you're going to take a flight um, on Spirit Airlines and, you know, if you want to take a carry on bag, you got to pay extra. If you want to reserve a seat, you you know, you got to pay extra.
2: Go to the bathroom, bottle of water.
1: You know, the like, don't yeah, You, know, you, <laughs> can, you have is, is as painful as it might be, you can opt out of some of those things, but you can't opt out of the freight charges or PDI fees or you know, other, other fees. If you can't opt out of them, just go ahead and bundle it in the price. It's
0: interesting that they break it all out so you can see what the fees are. I don't think yeah. that no, and that's, the States, that's they don't good. tell you what the PDI but, I mean, The costs, price that you
1: advertise should include all that stuff.
0: Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just, it's interesting to me that, you can see where the money goes.
2: The level of transparency, I think, is yeah. that that's my only issue with bundling everything is I want to see what each of these prices are. So we've talked about this before. Like, I think, yes, if they shouldn't be allowed to advertise a price that doesn't include these things, but I also want a level of, of detail and transparency so I know what each one is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You want the above the line and the below the line. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's a, a produce, producer instinct kicking in. That's great. <laughs>
1: Excellent. all right and that's all we've got for this week yes uh, so let's wind it up uh, thanks for listening um, you know if you uh, uh, feel like you enjoyed the show please uh, go and give us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or any other you, place where you can find to rate podcasts and tell yeah, your and friends if you feel about like
0: it you, if you feel like you didn't enjoy the show please send us an email yes <laughs> no <laughs> to don't Um I think it's it's important to hear. From yeah, no, you. We, we want constructive feedback. We, we
2: do want we want constructive feedback. That's the difference.
0: Yes, right, like <laughs> for sure. Codes in my report card in high school it has potential. <laughs> doesn't use it. Those things. All um, right. Yeah. All right. So thanks for joining us. We'll see everybody next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to Wheelbearings. Hey, we love to listen to our listeners, too. Drop us an email to feedback at wheelbearings.media with your thoughts, questions, or conversation starters. That's feedback at wheelbearings.media. You can also find us on Twitter at wheelbearingscast. Don't use any vowels except for the A in cast. So that's W-H-L-B-R-N-G-S, cast. Thanks again. We hope to hear from you soon.